Hello everyone, welcome to WeegeeCast, this is episode 19, uh, we are in, what, what month are we in? We're in March, I, I, I forget what month we're in, but the last cast we did was in February, so it's, yeah, that's how it's months March, work, Andy. that's how months work, yeah, it's all good, it's all good. Yeah. This evening we are joined by the fantastic Chris, uh, Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thanks, how are you Andy? Um, I'm surviving, apart from not knowing the month or the episodes or anything, I'm, I'm surviving, not doing too badly. Are you remembering your name? You just answered to it there. So I did answer to it. And it's, it's always it's, it's four letters. It's hard to forget. <laughs> but then that's yeah, true. When we do think of you, four letter words do come to mind. So it is perfect. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All those words. It's fucking. We are not even twenty seconds in, Andy. Come on. <laughs> not even twenty seconds. I've heard I've heard that phrase before, but I, I don't know where. Uh, oh my god, this is really set the tone. <laughs> Hello Chris, thank you very much for joining us on WeegeeCast. Uh, Andy's been super excited about getting you on for quite some time now. Um, it sounds like he looks up to you a fair amount, so it'll be interesting to get your kind of perspectives. Um, I think you've worked a couple of jobs that our previous guests haven't actually worked either, so that, that'll be really interesting to kind of get down to. But um, yeah, so I mean... I guess the first thing we kind of talk about really is like, um, how long have you been in, in the industry, Chris? Uh, kind of since the beginning, I guess. I'm mm-hmm. a bit of an old bugger now. Um, <clears throat> OG. Yeah, uh, I, um, I've, I mean, my first paid security-related job was in the mid '90s, and that was a, a firewall startup I did uh, in the U.S. with some friends of mine, which uh, happily led to an acquisition. But um, yeah, so quite quite a while. Yeah, I mean, when would you? So, from the people I've spoke to, certainly the, the more experienced people, like within the industry, and the ones that you say have been around, kind of generally seem to kind of start talking about the kind of dot com boom as being when kind of internet security kind of kicked in, which would make sense, obviously, being that it's the birth of the internet. But what, what, what kind of, when, when would you say, like, uh, like security as maybe what it is similar to now, kind of like pen testing, that sort of stuff, what kind of year was it that kind of started kicking in? And what were you doing at the time when kind of pen testing was maybe becoming, you know, like quite a regular thing for businesses to kind of have done? Or just hacking in general. Or just hacking in general, I guess, yeah. So... Uh, the late mid to late nineties was when we started to see a lot of the commercialization mm-hmm. of uh, kind of your offensive security testing tools and uh, concepts. Originally, you had uh, like some open source scanners like Saint and Satan that came out somewhere I think between ninety four ninety six, and then uh, Klaus released uh, sorry Chris Klaus released ISS. Sometime around 1995, 96, and that was, I believe, the, and I could be mistaken, the first commercial internet scanner. And they, uh, of course, had been acquired and reacquired many times since then. I think IBM, um, I think that was the foundation for IBM X-Force. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so the, that side of things has been going on for quite a while. I myself worked on the offensive side of security after the dot-com boom in the early 2000s when I was doing some work uh, for some cloak and dagger folks. Um, By the way, I'm not American. I know I sound like one. A lot of my career was in the U.S., but uh, I I was doing some fun 
uh, kind of like Red Team, but for real, uh, work for the U.S. government. And that was a lot of entertaining uh, time that really helped me hone my skills and get mm-hmm. a good appreciation and understanding for the mindset of the attacker, yeah. which now that I'm on the uh, the defensive side has been very helpful. I bet, yeah. You got to know what to defend against at the end of the day. Like, uh, Would you say that it's... Uh, essential for so what kind of i suppose before we kind of get into those questions i was about to ask there like um what kind of roles have you done within security you obviously don't have to be too too specific to give anything away but um if you've been obviously in the industry for a while i'm guessing you've had a lot of various been a spy done all that shit no i'm joking (laughs) uh no just that was just more of a a guy in a cubicle uh beside a boiler because it was raging hot where we worked but anyway um i have done from working as a startup to architecture work to network security work to the offensive work then i kind of started getting into project and program management and worked my way into the role of a CISO for a couple of global banks wow so i've gone from you know the the smelly nerd with the fingers on keyboard to the guy <laughs> in a tie yeah that's quite the journey like and to to go the whole way through and especially obviously like you say doing it from pretty much the offset or at least kind of starting your role and kind of seeing like the full history of effectively the internet and the kind of security side of it kind of pan out um it must give you a really strong skill set to be able to be a CISO because I, I get the feeling you really got to understand unbelievable amounts of layers like within obviously business structures and then the technical side of security itself um i can't imagine everybody's kind of suited to that or kind of role well no, I would I would agree that definitely uh, uh, not everybody is suited to be a CISO, and at the risk of sounding arrogant, most CISOs aren't suited to be a CISO, <laughs> um, because most folks are still convinced today that it's a technology issue, yeah. and yes, uh, the remediation is largely technical, but it's also uh, within that kind of technology pie, more of that is even uh, supporting processes, all the things that we don't like to think about, documentation, awareness, training. um, Those those are more important. Despite my background uh, on on the tech side, that was maybe a single digit percentage of my time when I was working as a CISO. Mm. Because most of your work is strategy, it's finances, it's HR related, Mm. um, it's communications and... uh, you know, it's because you're you're in in a traditional CISO role. Um, it's an executive role, so you have to act like an executive. You communicate like one. You use the language, and um, that that's I think one of the biggest disconnects we have in our industry is that we still we're we're purists in a sense of well, if there's a potential vulnerability for this, we can't let this product you know go to, go to release. When in reality, um, our job is actually to help our organizations be better, faster, stronger. And in most cases, that means we help them be profitable. And we, we kind of forget that's that's why we get a paycheck. Yeah. The product they're, they're looking for. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like about removing, well, it's something that Chris and I have talk, talked about at length, but it's, it's removing the language of security away from security because every conversation you have with someone outside of the security sphere shouldn't mention security because it's a dirty word and nobody nobody, like people people automatically turn off as soon as you start talking technical and having that understanding of well uh, common common ground things at risk and like you said previously communication is key so i suppose that the question 
here that's embedded in all, all the all the guff I'm chatting here. What's it like transitioning from a kind of hardcore technical role through the years to into like CISO and kind of executive level? What 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 have been the main challenges you've experienced over that kind of career uh, or journey? It was painful. It's uh, a short answer. It was it, it it was pain because I was the, the very much the the security tech zealot where. I, I was an obstructionist, and it took a guy named Martin Carmichael, who at the time was effectively the CISO for Wells Fargo Bank, um, and I was uh, working for him as as an external consultant. And um, he basically took me aside one day and reminded me that my job was to help the bank make money and be profitable. It wasn't to get in the way by saying no, but it was to help the various projects and the various business units be successful at delivering uh, the products and the capabilities they were trying to deliver. And um, it was kind of eye-opening for me because I was just so caught up in the little echo chamber of InfoSec, <clears throat> excuse me, where, um, <coughs> excuse me again, um, caught up in that echo chamber where we, you know, I just kind of lost or never truly understood why I had had a job and why I was collecting that paycheck. Mm. And um, that was kind of a big watershed moment that, that really helped me. And since then, I've been privileged to have a couple of senior executives uh, for places I've worked at spend some time and help me and help mentor me in, in terms of my uh, management committee or management board presentations or board of director presentations to explain to me what the language was that it needed to be, why it was that language, what the language meant. Um, one, one of the banks I worked for spent a small fortune sending me to executive training. And uh, it was so valuable because it, it really helped me transition from, or, or kind of complete the transition from the technology side to that management side where I, I could communicate effectively with my stakeholders and with my peers and that that was huge yeah i bet and um obviously i, I don't really do pen testing at the moment um but I, I obviously a big part of it that i've learned so far is very much that kind of split at least talking about the paperwork between executive summary and technical yep. summary so when you i'm assuming it'll be yourself being a CISO that will be receiving a lot of uh, pen test reports for example when you get them um i guess you're in quite a an interesting position where you get to really understand what is a really good executive statement you know and what's a really good technical one as well um so uh, would you say that's kind of would you say that you you are in a good position to kind of kind of see the kind of see full reports now and kind of see like the kind of quality in them. Like, uh, I'm trying to think exactly what my question is there. <laughs> so, so I suppose what you're trying to ask, Dave, is what's it what's it like receiving a report now, given that you're you've been through the the ringer, so you understand it from an executive level and a technical level. Or yeah, out in my head, Andy. Like, that's exactly. Yeah, sure. That's exactly what we were going for. <laughs> So it's it's pretty much what we would expect it to be. I, I think overall that this is still, as an industry, the biggest area where we need to mature. And that's on, on how we communicate outside of our bubbles and echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of reports. I've had some fantastic uh, technical information, uh, you know, very uh, limited in terms of false positives. 
um, you know, good data. However, when it came now to explaining the value of that report, yeah, it just wasn't there. Yeah, um, part of that, of course, is on us um, as as the customer because we're sometimes as as organizations we don't even understand what are the information assets that we're trying to protect and what our threats are. Mm-hmm. So, because if if you know that, you can really get. Uh, a lot more tailored or you, you can be a lot more specific in terms of what you're looking for from a red team or a pen test. And uh, you can derive a lot more value because you've kind of created, you know, some nice groundwork. But if you're just doing a broad, this is our annual, you know, pen test that we have to do to keep the regulators happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a lot of findings and a lot of it on paper looks critical. Like it has a high CVS or CVVS score and all that. But um, in reality, it might not even matter. Because they they might not be critical systems, they might be isolated, or they might be on the you know backbend parts of the network. Um, there's a lot of reasons why something that could look like oh this is a critical vulnerability is something that as a CISO I just really couldn't care less about mm. because it's just it's not directly relevant to the the key risks of the business, and that's you know I keep coming back to this, but this is our, our biggest disconnect is is the. You know, Andy alluded to it earlier, you know, the conversation about risk versus the conversation about technology and controls. And um, I really think when we're people are getting their OCSP certifications or OSCPs or whatever it is, um, I always confuse that one with the uh, the PKI protocols. Um, and uh, I, I would love to see in the technical search some information about you know kind of strategy and risk and you know asset based review so that you have context on why you're doing it and what the out and what the output should look like um and this is just uh it's a it's a huge problem yeah yeah i mean uh certainly i guess just looking at my own kind of career path i'm kind of coming from kind of having in fact i suppose we're going to bring this up at some point uh, and it makes sense to do it now but I recently just accepted employment uh, as a junior pen tester <clears throat> at nice. a, a very well-respected company uh, in the UK, and I've uh, got a couple of weeks until I start, but uh, I'm super excited about that. Uh, and th- this is uh, having this conversation with you just now is probably quite timely, because I'm obviously going to start thinking about myself as a junior pen tester. Can I come in to writing these reports like, and getting a better understanding of, kind of bigger businesses? Um, and obviously... It'll be interesting to see how the reports that I write or I'm part of writing kind of land, you know. Um, so just just take that back. Um, so I've kind of been to university. I've done a lot of writing, uh, and I'm hoping that'll be kind of skills that really help me when it comes to doing those reports, uh, at least from a kind of kind of quality perspective. But uh, to someone in my position, so just uh, I'm coming from doing kind of certifications. I work within kind of uh, cyber essentials is mostly what I've been doing. So, um, uh, yeah, so if I'm like, what what advice would you give me as a CISO um, coming into doing pen testing? Like, th- what are the kind of key things that I should be remembering when I'm kind of doing reporting, would you think? Well, it, it starts even before you do your reporting. I think it's it should start when you're scoping or looking at uh, the engagement. And that's ultimately there is the, of course, you know, the contract and, 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 and the terms there. But... It, it's really important to understand the business that you're testing. Like mm-hmm. why, what information to them is important? Why is it important? And if a bad thing happens to that information, 
Um, what is the impact of that to the organization? And try to look at it in very measurable terms, not just like, oh, it's really bad or, oh, it's reputational harm. Because um, uh, we can dig into that later if we like. But a, a lot of the traditional metrics that we look at in terms of financial harm, like stock price and reputational harm, have been proven to be bo bogus. And uh, just they're just complete red herrings. Mm. And um, so it's... It's, it's first understand what, what information is important to the company. And then once you've done your testing, and then when you're looking at your results in the context of what you did at the beginning in terms of understanding what's their strategy, where are they going, what kind of services are they offering? Um, why are your findings important to them? And how does, how do your findings help them be better at what mm. they're doing? Right? So it's, it's not a case of, Oh, let's gloat because, you know, they they have, uh, you know, their intern did something stupid in terms of passwords. <laughs> you know, let's, because one of the things that we do in, in, in InfoSec way too much is, you know, schadenfreude. Like we, we take joy in other people's suffering. Yeah. Um, and let, let's face it, uh, the, the information security world is a complex, uh, complex environment. And there is not a lot of training or awareness and in, you know, your engineering degrees, your developer programs that teach people how to write secure code, how to deploy networks secure, securely. And of course, CIOs, they themselves, they have a different set of um, priorities that are given to them by their board, which is basically deploy more capabilities, improve our customer experience, improve our, improve our employee experience, introduce automation, reduce cost. Mm -hmm. And those are really their main objectives. So if you can keep those objectives in mind with what you talked about with the strategy as you're writing up your report, then you can start writing a report that adds value to the organization. It says, this is how we can make you better, faster, and stronger, as yeah. opposed to here's all the places where you suck. So because uh, one thing I, I hate that, those reports. just sort of thought about it. on that topic, would you say by, by that kind of length of things that to an extent, and this is a bit of a controversial topic, pen testing doesn't really add much value? Oh, agreed. I hate pen testing. I, I think for the take. most part, it's a waste of time, energy, and money. Yeah. And I realize I'm, you know, pissing off a lot of people and a lot of my friends and, um, you know, might make myself a bit of a pariah. But as, as a CISO, it's, I do it because the regulators make me do it. But yeah. let, let's face it, I will already know ahead of time, if we don't have good asset management, if we don't have good patch management, if we don't have good developer practices, I'm already going to have a ton of holes. Yeah. So what all what you're doing is you're just giving me a snapshot and a point in time that I could potentially use to generate additional funding to get, uh, you know, some static or dynamic or you know hybrid testing tools, you know, to to improve our situation internally or to change stuff. But overall, uh, pen testing I think is way overhyped and way overrated for the value it brings to an organization. Of all of the, the different tools and things, for me, it's one of the things that are more on the bottom. I would rather spend more money on awareness training uh, for to help people not click on phishing links. Mm. That's uh -huh. more value to the organization. It's not sexy. I'd rather spend more money on asset management and risk scoring all of our assets and making sure we have good uh, information maps where we say, this is an information category. Where is it? How does it interact with other systems? Where does it go? What are we doing? What are the risks? and spend money on that than I would on pen testing. Mm -hmm. Because the former adds value. Pen testing is just a snapshot at a point in time. And unless I need that report 
as leverage for something else, it's it's not ultimately going to add a whole lot of value. So now, if you're an organization that's fairly mature or you're a smaller company, you can start using that as a way of you can use it to improve because you can start if you you know do say a pen test every six months or every year. When you're looking at the reports over time, you can start saying, okay, here's some trends. Here are things we're doing well. Here are the things we're not doing well. And make changes at, on, on that basis. But in your big global enterprises, pen testing is just everybody hates it because, yeah, we, we now have all of these things that because of our compliance people, they say we have to patch all the highs. And we know from a risk perspective, most of those highs aren't really high risk for us. So now we're spending time, energy, and money mitigating risks that aren't actually risks instead of, you know, mitigating the, the right risks to the organization. Mm. So pen testing, I, I'm not much of a fan. No, I, That's I, a really interesting take. Uh, I'm, 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 kinda, I'm, I'm glad to hear something that's of a kind of generally different opinion. Obviously, the majority of people we've had on have been generally pen testers. And I don't think it's a question we've really actually had anyone we could really ask. Um, so it's really interesting getting that fresh take because I can Im- I can see where you're probably coming from. Like, um, where's the risk? And the biggest risk, uh, as we often hear, tends to be the person clicking the link. Um, so like, yeah. maybe, maybe it's better ways to kind of get around that. Well, Have you got- it's a topic that's come up more and more recently. So I've, I've been... I'd, it was a question I wanted to ask Chris because I, I knew that he had an interesting take on it. And one of the mm-hmm. things, having been a pen tester for a while, I... I, I think i agree with that that mentality that pen testing doesn't add value i, I mean it, it adds value for some things don't get me wrong there there are areas like chris has said so things like compliance and regulators where they are required so if you're going through like pcis the payment card industry or like things like cyber essentials or if you need to have xyz on your company or like iso you need to have pen testing done yep. but the core fundamentals is often like you said correctly asset management patch management vulnerability management understanding that from an internal perspective and the thing that comes up more and more the more that I speak to clients is that it's like repetitive, but the, the thing that comes up more often than not is that we're doing this because we need to do X or we need to do Y, but in actual fact, they should be investing their money in defensive because we've seen mm-hmm. and we see it time and time again that red teaming and pen testing they are hard, but we only need to be lucky once, and like you said correctly it's a snapshot in time. Defensive teams need to be correct every single time. Every time a vulnerability comes out, every Tuesday when Patch Tuesday happens, it, red teams see it as exploit Wednesday. Blue teams think, "Oh shit, everything's on fire again. We need to." Well, it means everything's on fire all the time. We'd be we'd be stupid if we thought it wasn't. But it's just the more I look at it, the more I think things like purple teaming are much more valuable to organisations because you're you're doing almost continuous red blue assessment but they're only really applicable to organizations that have a more mature security model because if you don't have a mature security model you're not getting effective value and at the end of the day it's about it's about enabling the company or the client to be more efficient at making money because money makes the world go round apparently you you know I'm not going to argue with what you've just said <laughs> it, it sounds awfully familiar, but so. it's, it's conversations that Chris and I have had for 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 time and time and time again. But it's it's something I'm always interested in. So, how did you land yourself into what you do now, Chris? So it actually starts. It's one of those things. It starts when I was a little boy. Um, I had the privilege of growing up uh, in in Canada, where my mother was the administrator for the computer science department at the university. And uh, because uh, she was a single mom, my ba- I went to the, uni- to the university after school 
And um, the, the professors there gave me accounts on the old mainframes. And these were the, the old days of mag tapes and data sharing, or sorry, time sharing, like old PDP-9s, PDP-10s, um, the uh, early, early versions of EMS, and then when Unix was this brand new revolutionary thing as well. Um, and uh, so I kind of got into it just as a kid because, uh, you know, they, they, these big computer systems did have, you know, some games on them. They were like your Colossal Cave Adventure, some of your classic text-based games. Um, and I, I wanted to access them. And sure, I, was, I had the opportunity of doing so, but some of the profs would be like, well, here's a, a Fortran manual. Why don't you write your own games? So here I am with this Watt 477 manual, you know, learning the code as a kid. Um, so I kind of just grew up doing this. So it's it's kind of all I know. But uh, and what so, kind of age were you at the time, Chris? Just, uh, just nine, eight or nine. Yeah, was when I first started it, I I got a my first paid job ever. I was nine years old doing data entry for a dollar an hour. Amazing on a, on a PDP ten using yeah. Tico as a web editor. Um, that's incredible what, what a time to start and what a way as well I can't imagine there's many people that probably be in a kind of similar situation um, was it daunting at first I, I can I, no, I'm I'm, not, I, I was a know? kid right and Just I was I was inspired. passionate about Star, Star Trek and sci-fi and stuff mm. so it, it wasn't so much daunting it's just like this is cool and I, mm. I wasn't limited by anything other than my imagination and uh, of course the capabilities of, of, of a young child yeah. um, so yeah, it, it was just, it was really exciting because, yeah, I got to see, you know, computer net, computers being networked. Um, the first emails I sent were back using the old UUNet routing where you had to manually input the routes from this computer to that computer to that computer to that computer. Wow. Um, it, yeah, okay. so you're early comment in the beginning about seeing the kind of the internet in its inception. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm an old guy. But, uh, I'm just jealous, though. I, I keep hearing this kind of. Uh, no, don't be jealous because uh, I've got wrinkles and I'm bald. <laughs> no, um, but I mean, you, you can't. You, we're, we're never going back there. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're never going to go back to the inception of the internet. I, I've, I'm 31, I've seen Back to the Future. So. I, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure it's doable. I mean, I believe Dave Kennedy, one of our previous guests, uh, yep. working on re doing up a, a DeLorean at the moment, and it's looking pretty great. So uh, we can maybe ask him, uh, see if we can. But we're we're never going back there. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I and I was too late for me. Like as I say, I'm, I'm 31, so I pretty much started using computers. I guess you'd be talking about 2000, 2001, you know, 2000s when I'm kind of eight, nine, ten. Really? Um, you're you're a, yeah. a late a late bloomer, man. You're older than me, and I was using computers in '95. Like I was using computers oh, well, I when mean, I was a wean, an actual what were you child. What, what were you doing as a five-year-old on a computer, though, Andy? Like, well, <laughs> that's what I'm talking more kind of practical usage. Well, I was learning how Windows ninety-five worked and doing bits. This of is true. And, important parts, but. and compl complaining how slow it was, and then seeing the transition. <laughs> one actually, one of the things that's been quite amazing through the transition of computing is looking at a USB stick, or even before USB sticks, looking at f going from using floppy drives to then hard drives. To then solid state and then well, flash before solid state but a flash drive being a hundred meg and now you can get a flash drive that's a terabyte that's that's like well from my from my little brain it's that's unfathomable in a very short space of time so we're talking like maybe what a 20 year period is it moore's law i think yeah yeah uh I'm trying to think. Yeah, I wouldn't want him to try and define Moore's law. I'll probably get basically it wrong. computing power doubles every two years. 
Is it every two years? See, I, I knew that there was a number in there I was missing. I so. think it's every two years. Yeah, I, I think well, you, that was you sounded, right, you sounded authoritative in that, so we'll probably just trust you. We'll, we'll accept it. And we'll just <laughs> well, well that's like, that's one of the uh, tricks you learn as a CISO. Just a say, bit. <laughs> oh, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to respond very calmly and confidently. Say yes, that is absolutely the right decision. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, I mean, my first memory of kind of storage, I suppose, was uh, the gateway computer that I got when I did most of my early computing, and that was kind of 2001. And I had like a DVD drive, so it was the first one with that. We had came with the Matrix and a wee cardboard box. Fantastic. Oh, IDE drives uh, as well. That, that well, that was it. Was an IDE, <laughs> and it was like ten gig. So that's kind of where I started out with what my storage was. Uh, what well, Chris? Uh, what what was storage like when when you started using uh, uh, like that mainframe? I suppose would be a similar age to it when I was using yeah, that. Yeah, I had computer. a mag tape, but I have no idea what the storage <laughs> was. Um, there was I, I still have it somewhere. Um, Do you really? Oh wow! Yeah. Like, that must be a really cherished memento. It is, um, and it it has stuff that was on my on my account back in the day, and some like early Star Trek games, which of course were all text based. Um, yeah. Oh, but Star Trek would really lend itself to text based. To be fair. Uh, oh, yeah. The as far as I know, the very first networking uh, it was a turn based game. It was called Trek Seven. It was written by a student from the University of Western Ontario named Donald Ecclestone. And it, it was turn-based where you, you, could, you had a choice between two Federation ships and two Klingon ships, and you, you basically could attack each other, or you could go against uh, you know, joint common enemies that had Moonbase Alpha, as well as your usual uh, Star Trek, um, your, your Goran, Orions, Kazinti, and so forth. Um, why do I even remember this? It's the it's the weird things that we remember. I was just just as we were talking about starting out and things. I was thinking about back to actually quite recently when I met Chris. I say recently, it's like maybe what, five years ago now or something. But it feels like the other day, and it was at B size Edinburgh. And you tapped me on the shoulder and you went, "How do do you go to DefCon?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, I've been like once or twice." And Chris invited me along to become a goon, and I I wanted to like kind of ask you. Because I don't think I've actually ever heard this story, how you how you became a, a goon at DEFCON, or what it's like to be a goon at DEFCON. We don't need to talk about it, but it's something I was interested in. Um, so, how I became a goon, it's... I've been going to DEFCON since DEFCON 4. Um, and uh, so I like I knew all the goons, like kind of the original OGs, as it were. And at one of the cons... Uh, so... Um, I, would ha- I had the privilege of being on the winning team for Capture the Flag at DEFCON 10. And uh, the conferences after that, you know, I would, I would go and just kind of hang out with friends. And I, I never really went to talks. So I think the last talk I went to was at DEFCON 8 or 9. Um, and uh, anyway, so to become a, becoming a goon, I was just chatting one day with... Uh, it might have been Flea or Peeve or whatever. We were at the... Uh, at the Riv and um, LineCon was starting. It was the first day. And they asked if I could just babysit a line because, uh, you know, they were, the line had gone out to the pool and just it was it was a really absurd year that year. Um, and uh, so I said, sure. So I was kind of babysitting line that was where it came in from the pool. And then they forgot about me. And then a few hours. And so I don't have a badge. I don't have a red shirt. I'm just a guy who's just standing around. Um, you know, doing my thing, and then 
when they finally re, you know came by, like, oh, you're still here. Yeah, okay, uh, we'll send somebody. And then a little while later, they threw a shirt and a badge at me and put me to work. <laughs> so, I mean, all I did at De- DEF CON half the time was just stand out and hang in the hallway with the goons anyway. Um, I mean, that's where you want to be, isn't it? Or like, from my understanding, basically, you know, the majority of people that are goons are pr- probably you know, doing pretty well in their field. Like, um, I, and I'd imagine, like, I can't imagine there's ever a boring conversation that you're going to have at DEF CON speaking to somebody else that's as enthusiastic as you to actually be there. Uh, obviously, maybe uh, for people, I suppose, like Andy, travelling across to Las Vegas, obviously yeah. quite a big deal. <laughs> so uh, as I'm assuming everybody you meet is just that it's an, always a fascinating conversation, no matter who. Uh Sometimes for for unexpected and not necessarily the more enjoyable reasons, but it's always interesting. Yeah. Um, but your, your DevCon goons, for example, they're they're not all techies. I mean, there are medical professionals. We've got a, a okay. couple um, full time army folks cool. that are there that are just friends of goons and oh, okay. uh, seem like this would be a fun thing to do. Uh, one one of the goons that I've uh, kind of partnered with uh, for most of my shifts the last few years, she's a cardiac nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Or Raven. Or... No, uh, atropine. Oh, yeah. Or heartbreak, whatever we call her. Heartbreaker. Um, her handle's changed a few times. But, um, yeah, so we've... Yeah, you, you've... But they're certainly passionate and they enjoy doing it. The, the goon family... Certainly, the security goons. It's a it's a very tight knit group of people. We've got our own kind of folklore, like their own <laughs> our own mythology, and um, it's we even have a goon fund where we've helped out goons who've had uh, you know financial difficulties or just you know bad stuff going on in life. We actually we we pride ourselves in being a family, and that's one of the things that keeps me coming back to DevCon is is that goon family. Yeah. Um, but also just the attendees. Like one of the, one of the things that I, I've harped on people during LineCon at DevCon is like when, when people come to DevCon, they're coming for a couple of reasons. One, they want to hear talks. Two, they want to talk. They want to meet meet new people, make new connections. Yet when they're standing in line, they're looking at their phones and just ignoring everybody. Mm. So as a goon, I've gone around and just encouraged people. It's like, okay, why are we here? We're here to see talks. I mean, you're in line, so that's obvious. And generally, you know, you you want to meet somebody because most of you have, okay, show, show of hands, who here has a side project that hasn't gone quite the way they want it? Most hands go up. But like, okay, well, talk to each other. Yeah, you know, the person next to you might have yeah. the answer. And, no, that's um, a good point. Yeah. So there's a lot of wasted opportunity from uh, from folks, but it's also very intimidating because especially now, right, when there's over 30,000 30, people standing around, yeah. It's uh, and it's, it's it's very very intimidating and it's uncomfortable. Like when I first went uh, to DevCon, the the best way to meet people was to have very overtly in your bag power strips, because uh, most of the time there weren't enough places to plug in because everybody had brought their laptops and this was of course before wireless. So if you had crossover cables, a hub, and power strips, you made friends. friends. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 they, people would just call you over, and suddenly, before you know it, you're sitting down in a group of folks. You're all networked together, working on something bizarre. And uh, you know that's that's something that I do miss. But you still see that in some of the uh, the breakout rooms or in like the break areas, chill rooms, whatever they're called. Um, so there's little bits of that still happening, but. Uh, that was for me what made DevCon originally so awesome. Was just that whole 
you, you don't know what, what you're going to do. Like the year that I played Capture the Flag, in my backpack with me, I had yeah, a bunch of power strips, a bunch of cables. Um, I brought a CD burner with me for some reason, and I brought three laptops. And I don't know why I brought all those gear, but it turned out to be serendipitous because we used it all uh, when we were doing our... Because uh, I, I ended up getting drafted for a CTF team because some friends of mine who played, their normal folks couldn't show up. And then... Um, you know, kind of got pulled in. And, to the uh, opportunity. Yeah that's, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I suppose, like, mobile phones are obviously, like, prevalent, reasonably new invention. Like, I'd imagine, would you say there's, there's something interesting to talk about? Uh, kind of like, see hacking culture maybe between, from the 90s to hacking culture like it is today. Like, obviously, like you said, going to DEF CON, everyone's got their mobile phone, Everyone's got most of their life online. Their head's kind of going to be stuck in there. And understandably, I can be guilty of it myself. Uh, but uh, is, is there quite big kind of, kind of culture differences in, in, in the hacking scene between when you kind of started out to now? No. Uh, the classic saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, your comment about <clears throat> everybody having kind of their, their mind on their devices and you know their, their online stuff back then... Oh, oh, damn. Excuse me. Um, back then, we were all on uh, BBSs, right? Everybody dialed into the wheel uh, out of California, I think it was. Um, there, there are a couple places. So we were already online mm. um, in those days. But it was, um, you know, it was just different. The, the platforms have changed. But ultimately, it's uh, the concepts, the lifestyle, the... Certainly the attitudes, thankfully, some of the attitudes are changing uh, just in terms of inclusivity. But um, yeah. overall, it's it's not changed much. The same mindset, the breaker, yeah. the fixer. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good. same That's personality good types from back then are, you see the same, like, it's it just, it's a cycle that you see repeating itself. It's the cycle of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, just people at the end of the day and obviously exactly uh, obviously things like defcon it's all, all about kind of having something in common like uh, and you might be kind of different areas that you might work in obviously the, the more i learn the, the more i realize how broad and niche so many areas of security can be well the and be able to put all that together into one place and like say as long as you're looking up and you're actually speaking to people you're gonna learn a lot the interesting thing about defcon and it's something i've learned over the past couple of years has been going the more that you go, not even, not even, even if you go to DEFCON once, you learn that not everyone there is technical. Actually, probably a large majority of people that go there are not technical. And a lot of mm. people don't even work in security, like Chris has said. They're just there because they enjoy the culture, they enjoy the different bits and pieces. And also, yeah. DEFCON is the centralised conference, but a lot of things that I didn't quite realise until I started getting more involved with it is there are so many offshoot conferences that happen at the same time as DEFCON, in the same week in Vegas, that are People that come to DEFCON, they get their DEFCON badge and they go to, like, like badge life has become a thing. So there's, like, different electronic badges for lots of different things. There's things like QueerCon. There's things like the Diana Initiative, which is yep. lo- like lots of different bits and pieces going on. There's the DEFCON parties. The parties are massive now, but they're, like, people just enjoy hanging out. So it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. It's cer- certainly something to do at some point. If you ever get the chance, and if if we ever manage to get returned back to Vegas, given COVID, uh, it'll be it won't be this year. It'll be next year. Yeah, yeah, it'll be twenty 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 two at least. But it'll be that'll be you. What three three years since you've been there? 
because you weren't there last time we were there. Yeah, I actually got off the plane. Did you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was in my seat, and then I uh, had some work drama, and I I got off the plane. Oh man, oh, that sucks. Well, actually, on on the topic of DefCon, before we move on, what's your, been your most interesting experience at DefCon since you've been going? It's a hard one, but it's no, it's it's actually not. Um, and it's it's uh, I don't know if you were at that con that year, Andy. Um, this was um, the theme was eighties um, for the entertainment and. Uh, do you guys remember the band Berlin? They have that song, mm-hmm. um, uh, theme song from Top Gun. What's it called? Yes, I remember Berlin, but I know uh, I don't know. I can't even remember the name of the song. Um, God damn it! Anyway, well, it's important it's, it's to the story. Oh shit! <laughs> um, we all have Google in front of us. Someone quietly Google. <laughs> yeah, I just did. Take my breath away. How can I not go. remember this when this is like my highlight of DevCon and I can't remember the name of the goddamn song? Part of In my the French. moment, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, so um, because I'm an old person, I'm a child of the 80s, I had a huge crush on Terry Nunn, the lead singer of um, Berlin, when I was growing up. And um, so... Berlin were playing at DevCon and I was gooning and if my extremely long story short, I'll try to make it short now, is she sang the song You Take My Breath Away while riding on my shoulders through the crowd. So oh, amazing. <laughs> carrying her around and she was singing a song. You know, she was steering me truly like a donkey by like tapping and um, <laughs> whatnot. But it was great. And then after the concert, uh, hung out with her for a few hours and we talked everything from technology to politics and whatnot. It was just years later, it, it was just a dream come true. And no, of course that sounds like a fantastic experience. Yeah, like so how many people get that opportunity? <laughs> uh, not many. It's apparently it's a thing that she does. She likes to do at concerts. Um, I wasn't the original person that they had picked to do it. It was one of the guys from, from Defcon staff, but he's not the biggest person. And, uh, so I, I, I happened to be at the right place at the right <laughs> time and got drafted. No, um, that's incredible. Like, what, what, what a little story. Like, <laughs> cool. What about you, Andy? My most interesting time at DEF CON? Yeah. I don't know, actually. I've, I've been to some interesting parties and seen some interesting things. I think the most interesting point for me is probably my first year. My first year as a goon. It was, that was DEF CON 24, I think, or 25. One, one of the two. And I was I was drafted into LineCon. Well, I, I was drafted into LineCon because of jet lag and being essentially eight hours difference between Vegas and, and the UK. I was kind of awake at seven o'clock in the morning. So I came downstairs and I was I was in charge of basically passing people between rooms. I think it must have been was it anyway passing people between rooms. And I was working with uh, Ada Zebra, who's this pretty 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 small. Uh, girl but she's got a very loud voice and also has a, a very um, wears a very fat, funky top hat with lots of LEDs and stuff and people are most most of them are she has presence she has presence yeah that's good presence I like good, that um, good phrase but we were passing people between and she was like this this guy knows what he's doing he's, he's good he's good at this shit and I was like this is my first year doing this I have no idea but, but having a having a loud Glaswegian shout at you seems to be <laughs> Actually, no, I, another funny story. So the, the first time I came to DEFCON, obviously Chris was my mentor. And 
Chris and I have got a lot of I me. Mean, he loves taking the piss out of me because I'm ginger. And the, the the Americans were finding it really offensive because Chris and I were joking about. He, but he they were they thought he was actually actively bullying me because I was ginger. And they're like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "No, it's fine." He's he just like, "Ah, fucking gingers. They never do this." And I'm like, "It doesn't bother me. I'm not. I'm not like they were getting so offended." It's so funny. And then I would be like, why do you care what he thinks? He's ginger. Exactly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Seriously, stop it. You guys are pissing me off. doesn't have a soul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, was, it was awesome. It was so funny. Um, I was just having a real look at the questions here and realize there's one quite high up our kind of early list that we've not actually talked about. And it'd be quite an interesting one. Um, just judging by how you've said you've kind of got into computing. Uh, do you have any higher higher education or kind of like uh, or did you do any certifications when you started out or was it purely just work experience and being in the right place you know at the, the right time no i did do some academics uh okay. I, I studied engineering at aberdeen and studied for phd at cambridge in uh wow. cryptology in cryptology so. wow that's incredible you got a pretty good with the old mathematics. You know, uh, there was a thing or two about two plus two. There was a thing or two about ones and twos Back and then, maybe. Two. At this point, if I counted to 21 in public, I'd probably get arrested. Um, <laughs> but uh, Is that just being too far away from it? Uh, kind of in the sense of kind of not, not using it enough to kind of maintain the skill? Partially that, but also no. going into it, I mean, I, w- I was way out of my league. Right, because back then, I mean, it, it was basically, especially cryptology, right? It, you're looking at number theory mm-hmm. and very advanced mathematics. Mathematics For me, my advanced mathematics, because I was coming from engineering, were like eigenvectors, eigenvalues, and quadratic equations. You know, we didn't go, you know, and, and a few transfor- transforms. And beyond that, we didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So I remember early on, every every Friday afternoon, from four to five, the computer security group at the university would get together and, um, you know, they're probably visiting lecturer and, or one of the PhD students would get up and talk about what they're doing. And inevitably somebody would be writing something on the whiteboard and then, yes, and so this is what I'm working on and, and I'm doing this. And then of course, when you apply such and so-and-so's, you know, theorem, then obviously you get, you know, X, Y, and Z, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, I've never even heard of so-and-so, never mind, you know, knowing anything about their theorems and their obvious confusion. So... My first couple of months, I was like, I should not be here. Um, Must be daunting that, to even begin with to go to somewhere like that. <laughs> Never mind then on top of that doing something so, what I imagine in my head, <laughs> incredibly difficult. Like, oh, that it, it was definitely difficult. intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember talking about this with my friends at the common room in, in our college. And we were all feeling intimidated. They were like, wow, we're expecting to have all of these you know, heavy-duty philosophical conversations with, you know, all of these incredible, brilliant minds. And then we're all looking around at each other like, yeah, instead we've got each other. So, you know, how'd that work out? <laughs> but, um, um, although that said, when I look at that that circle of folks, they've all gone on to do really great things. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, that's great. It's certainly, I don't think education... Uh, look, lis- listening to some of the subtext or one of the underlying questions is necessary uh, as a for for the industry. Like I don't think you need it. Some of my, the my most uh, capable colleagues and friends uh, don't have uh, you know higher education. The guy who runs uh, the blue team, or that I, I hired into the blue, to run the blue team at uh, the, the bank I was last working at. 
Um, he doesn't have a university degree, and I don't care. He's got communication skills. He's got the technical skills. Uh, mm -hmm. He can speak suit. He can speak geek. And so it was, it was a good fit. Um, speak suit and speak geek. I like that. Like, cause that's effectively, I guess, what's exactly what's going on. Like, uh, what's required. Yeah. It's, As well, if, if you want to advance, you got to, right? Because yeah. it's ultimately you need to, as we talked about in the beginning, explain in understandable language, the value proposition of what you're doing. And, and if you can't do that, no matter what industry you're in, if, whether you're an infosec or you're you're an engineer or uh, just what I can't even think of anything right now I'm getting tired but uh, whatever whatever you're spilled if, if you can't demonstrate to the people that are paying you the value proposition of what you're doing you, you're not going to uh, you're certainely not going to advance yeah that's interesting that's good to hear actually as well because I think every single story that we hear on this podcast where you're hearing about people getting into very successful roles, having great careers and not necessarily having started with education because education is absolutely, you know, it's a privilege to those of us that get it and not everybody has the opportunity either through, you know, um, just the way their life is and, and what they're going through uh, financially. They maybe can't afford it, just general time or maybe just the idea of going to, college or university you know scares people and understandably so um yeah, so I suppose there, uh, it's great hearing about people that are successful but not going necessarily through that path there's a fourth one to add to that as well i was just thinking there, there's the academic aspect of things because there is being intelligent and there's being a problem solver and then there's being academic and they're they're not all like divert like they're not all related like i went to university and i got a degree but i'm not academic and i dropped out after two years of university i only got a bachelor's degree didn't get my honors and there are people equally like myself who are good at what they do in their day job, but they're not academics. And equally, you have people who are very, very, very good at what they do. They're academic. They've got very good academic minds, but they're not very good at the practical set of stuff or they're not very good at the day job set of stuff. So that, that's, 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 my, that's my 50p on that topic. <laughs> no, I suppose, uh, well, obviously, uh, that, that's, I guess, where... I, I feel like your position sounds really strong, Chris, like, because you have the experience of all those camps that we've just kind of mentioned there, like, uh, um, and it kind of all add, obviously adds up, but yeah, obviously, like you're describing, like, it's the, you don't have to necessarily go through that same path, like. Um, yeah, you definitely don't need the academic background, but it does help. Yeah. And the sad reality is, and I don't want to get into the, you know, to a sociological discussion about gatekeeping and, you know, how things should be, because I will, I will agree that the way things are, are not how they should be. Mm -hmm. But then the reality on the ground is there, there is a lot of gatekeeping that is done by folks that aren't necessarily your hiring managers, like your, some organizations and some regulatory agencies, for example, require advanced degrees for senior executives. Um, I know that if you wanted to be uh, a C-level person in the Middle East, for example, in most of those countries, you have to have at least a master's degree. Okay, um, I had no idea. That's a really yeah. So that there are, you know, you, you, you need them to tick boxes, yep. and um, so you can certainly get there. You can get where you need to go, where you want to go, without the academic background. But it will be harder, and you have to be a lot more mindful and strategic about how you want to get there. 
and mm. really take career planning to a whole new level and make sure you're developing the skills. And as I mentioned earlier, you're able to demonstrate the value proposition that you're bringing. And if you can do that, you can advance without those degrees. You might not be able to become uh, a CISO to financial institution without without a degree in, in some areas if it's if those roles are overseen by the regulators mm -hmm. um, because it's certain uh, senior executive roles need to be approved by the regulatory agencies. Uh -huh. And um, some agencies, as I mentioned, require uh, university degrees, some require advanced degrees. Um, so, but you can still be a CISO in a, a large, uh, significant organization if that's it's your career path without the degree, but you still need to, you know, then you kind of got to work a little harder to demonstrate your value proposition in some senses. Because quite frankly, my academic background has opened doors for me and has given me credibility in rooms where I might not necessarily should have had credibility, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I kind of lucked out and had it anyway. No, that's it. Just uh, everyone's got their different route, so th th that's really interesting to hear. Uh, out of interest, then, so in a position of kind of CISO, um, are you expected to continue uh, your education to to a degree within these roles? Like, are you expected to continue doing certifications, or is there any certifications you need to do to to, to do the role? Um, just to get a, so an idea of the landscape. It depends on the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I had interviewed and was at the offer stage for a Fortune 50 company uh, to be their CISO um, for the European operations. And this is like a household brand name. Mm -hmm. But then their compliance people said that, oh, my CISSP is expired because I did it way back in, in the early 90s when I first moved to the US, mm -hmm. or sorry, in the, in the mid to late 90s when I first moved to the States. <clears throat> and I let it expire. And uh, for them, it was a deal breaker. The fact that I'd been a CISO at a global bank and had done all these other things didn't matter to the box tickers of the HR side of things. Um, so, but, but to answer your specific question, as a rule of thumb, when you're a CISO, um, you're generally required from your compliance perspective compliance teams to have a minimum number of hours of training. Like if you're a security practitioner and you're, mm -hmm. you're high responsibility they're typically they're looking for like 40 hours a year of some type of security training. That's uh, fortunately you can generally, you know, take that box by going to like black hat at DEF CON or RSA or somewhere, even if you're not attending talks, you can, you know, show your ticket and, you know, demonstrate your compliance and, and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. The reality is that most CISOs will never have the time to, do additional training or take additional courses. Yeah. Uh, in my the experience, nature of that the role, role, I guess. Yeah, you've got uh, crazy amounts of responsibility, and um, unless you've got that, you know, secret sauce to to get funding from your executive team and from your board, um, you're going to be under resourced and uh, and just you know trying to trying to keep your lights on. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'd imagine that, yeah. I mean, for even me, just trying to do like a full time job and studying to do pen testing on this side as well, like, is certainly yeah. an absolute challenge. Uh, and that's nowhere near the responsibility that obviously a CISO is going to have there. I can't imagine that it'd be easy to kind of balance that. But it's interesting because, like I say, we, we've not really had anyone in the kind of positions you've been in. So I've no idea what it gets like when you get to that stage uh, uh, in it's, regards it's to education. So, it's hectic. Cool. But I'm, I'm actually going to contradict myself here because I just remember that when I f uh, did my first uh, bank CISO job, 
<clears throat> excuse me, when they told me, or told me I was getting promoted, when they offered me the promotion and that I had accepted, um, I took some time, I, I took a couple of weeks holiday and did some online courses on uh, risk management, risk engineering, mm -hmm. like basically risk, ma risk management in the financial services and some classes on banking. Oh, right. Because I had sense. been working at the bank uh, only for about four months and I was responsible uh, globally for their uh, technology, their information, and I guess what we'd call cyber risk. So I had those three risk domains. And uh, just a few short months later, they, they offered me a CISO gig. And um, I was still, I, I, I very quickly in those few months realized there were some significant gaps in my education. Yeah, and my awareness because um, as the CISO, I was at that bank. I was a voting member of the operational risk committee, which is a, a board level committee, and so I would be having a vote on whether or not this derivative risk was was acceptable for us, right? And at that point in time, I didn't know what derivatives were. Yeah. So I of course abstained for things where I I could not have an informed opinion, mm -hmm. and but I I had to bust my butt to really fill in those educational gaps. And I think that really helped. And it also gave me credit credit with the CEO who did start mentoring me and put me through the executive training because he saw that I was trying to understand the business and learn the business and fill in those gaps of, of my knowledge and background. And then uh, he reached out a hand and, and helps. Four months isn't a lot of time to speak the lingo. Um, no. Of banking, I can't imagine. Like, um, and then obviously, if you're making decisions on the security, um, yeah, I guess it, like <coughs> with anything, you have to understand the 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 fullest picture you possibly can. Yeah, you need to understand the business if, if you're mm. going to do it properly. Like, what were we doing as a bank? And on the surface, it looks tr straightforward because you think, okay, retail banking is is easy. But that retail banking is not where the banks make their money. The banks really make their money in the capital markets and in the trading yep. areas. That's uh, unless there's a financial downturn and they make a lot of the money on the lending side. Um, but the capital markets groups, and um, it has a very different uh, risk appetite because the traders have a daily float of millions of dollars per day. And if they lost it that day, that's okay. That's kind of their daily budget. And um, so then as a security person, you're trying to put security controls in here saying, well, we need all these levels of signature for anything that's like $1 million or over. Meanwhile, you know, the 27-year-old that's been working there for two years has a $3 million float. Ah, you're kind of out of touch. Mm. I'm so, just thinking back to what you said before um, and your advice to me being a pen tester coming in, obviously, is understanding, you know, the business that you're testing. Like, and it sounds like that's kind of exactly what you've done in this situation, like where you obviously went, cool, I'm in a bank. I'm going to have to learn how banking works to better understand how I can, you know, apply my role. Um, yeah. So I'm like, just I'm just thinking that in practicality of what that probably means to me would probably be, you know, if I know I'm going to be doing a big engagement in the future, would be maybe spending maybe five hours actually learning about, you know, the area that they're in, the market they're in, you know, and, and doing due diligence, I guess. That's, would maybe be that's the, something I do on red teams. So if we're targeting a specific mm. business area, like actually a prime example is the biotech recently. I know nothing about mm. biology. I've got absolutely, well, actually before that engagement, I knew nothing about biology. 
one of our objectives was to get into a plant room. I didn't know what a plant room was. Uh, so I had to go mm. and read a lot about what how biotech works and how all these other things work. And I learned a lot about robotics by doing it as well. Because what I didn't realise in biotech and quite often in plant rooms is they, they use very, very expensive robots to access samples and use them for, for testing out things. And one of the objectives of the engagement was to get access to the robotic arm and be able to move it. And given how cool robots are, I was like, oh, that sounds really, really interesting. But see, sitting down and reading the documentation about how a fucking robot works, let alone a robot that's worth half a billion dollars. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty daunting. Can you even find the documentation? Yeah, we found, we found <laughs> the documentation. So, you know, the, the kind of the big moving bookshelves in like Minority Report, the big huge ones. That's essentially what the robot arms and stuff are like. Um, and I, my brain was just like, whoa, that's fucking cool. But by the end of that engagement, I could, I can talk quite um, in, a, in a knowledgeable manner as to how the robot arm worked and also explain the risk to the client because I understood it. So it's just about almost knowing your audience the same way as, I suppose, stand-up comedy and all yep. that other shit. But mm-hmm. yeah, knowing your audience is key, but also knowing a little bit about the topic. And that's kind of... It's clear across pen testing in general. It's not just a case of talking about like robotic arms or biology or financial or whatever, but the different technologies you come up against as well. You could be going from learning about Java one day and then going straight in and learning about some obscure Linux operating system. Yeah, yeah. I think this is something I'll probably be taking, you know, putting some thought into. I'm sure people listening. Uh, to this as well, well, like, because uh, yeah, just a, a bit of due diligence. I'd imagine it gives you a lot more personal confidence walking into the room with a company. You know, it does. Um, to have that kind of the the ability to communicate and speak in their language, um, and obviously, uh, like you were saying earlier, that's where the value probably comes from from them is being able to speak in that language. Um, so I'd imagine moving forward for me, I'm going to be sure to even if, even an hour. It's amazing what you can learn in an hour if you focus. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like. Um, an hour's worth of learning might be super, super valuable like, uh, before these kind of engagements. Yeah, prep, prep time is critical. And one of the things I'd highly recommend you look at as one of your core prep documents is look at the annual report from the company. Ooh, interesting. Um, I'm writing that they're down. typically published on your website, especially if they're publicly traded, then they mm-hmm. have to. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, in, uh, in a previous job, I did not jump on company's house. So you kind of learn... I think it's quite surprising how much information about a company can be public when the company is public um, yeah. that, you, that you can find. Like, uh, but that that'll tell you what their strategy is, mm-hmm. what are their main projects, what are what are they going to be doing like over the next couple of years, and also tells you what are the big risks that they're facing, whether yeah. they be market risk, regulatory risk, credit risk, uh, technology risks, and so forth. And w- once you've got that as your background. And then when when you uh, you know when you're writing your final reports or, or you're doing your assessments, you, you can really kind of scope what you're trying to do and make sure mm-hmm. that uh, you know if if you can use some of the language that's in those documents for the executive summaries because um, that's a great place to learn how to write at the executive level is look at annual reports because that's that's ex- essentially what the document is. Um, there's a wee and, hack for you maybe like uh, what's the uh, what's the what's the password my, my password list creating tool when it kind of pulls basically everything from a website what? and it gives you all the cool. name words 
Is it cool? Yeah, I thought it might have been like, uh, yeah, maybe doing that over a couple of those documents might get you the kind of key buzzwords, <laughs> but it might, might just be worthwhile <laughs> using. Like, uh, well, just just read the the summaries on on strategy and risk. Um, you don't necessarily need to dive into the financials, but if you if you look at what's their what's their strategy, what are they trying to do? It also explains overall uh, at a high level what their business is. Yeah. Um, but then the risk section is very important because ultimately. Uh, what you're doing as as a pen tester is you're helping their their CISO or, or equivalent, who is ultimately their risk manager for things related to information. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of people think the CISO is the risk owner, and they're not because it's not their data. Uh, if you want to know whose data it is, you know, imagine if you delete it all, who's going to scream loudest? That's the actual <laughs> data owner. Um, That's going to be putting that. Seriously, that's how you find out who the data owner is. Imagine oh, if it's gone. Who's going to scream loudest? Okay, so Betty, Betty's the data owner. She, yeah. She's the one that's clearly going to scream loudest if this is gone. I'd imagine and, that's uh, the same with an IT. If you're going to uninstall a program like that's maybe been sitting there, you're not sure exactly who uses it. Oh, well, uninstall it. We'll, we'll see who sends an attack it. <laughs> yeah. That's the way to do it. I'll be back in two seconds, guys. You all right, okay. Wash your hands. Yeah, make sure you wash your hands. Don't don't be don't be being. It's all that water he's been drinking. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is on, indeed. On the topic of questions, so we, we've kind of dove back and forth, forth between interesting. Well, I mean, everything's been interesting so far. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not not, not trying to say you're not interesting because you absolutely are. Uh, in terms of like, what do you do to? I mean, I already know the answer to this question, but what do you do to like unplug and decompress from like, the day job? Um, well, pre-pandemic, um, it would generally involve either a motorcycle, um, single malt whiskey, never together, to be clear, <laughs> um, or the hill, or playing music, or just go roaming up and down hills. Yeah, suppose, well, but, uh, yeah, my, my, kind of my core group of friends tend to be security people who are also musicians who are passionate about Scottish whiskey. And uh, the last time I lived here in Edinburgh, you know, it was Friday afternoons at the Whiskey Society. Oh, the Whiskey Society is great. I, I actually, yeah. everyone talks about oh, getting back to the pubs and everything, but getting back and just enjoying a single malt or even just sitting yeah. down with some friends is something I miss the most. So Yeah, you've actually done that with I us. I have, yes. I, I can't remember, I can't remember how I ended up in that situation. I think it was possibly after B-Size Edinburgh that we were having whiskey or maybe I just ended up being there at the same time. I can't remember. I think you might have actually just been walking down the street and we yelled at it you. It could be that. It could be that. And I, I don't find myself in Edinburgh very often, so that that's. Oh. Yeah, it was that it was B sides related, but I think you, we saw you because we were sitting by the window. I think. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I think you were. Yeah. Anyway, it was a few years back. I don't it remember. was conferences, eh? It's been a while since those things happened, and it's going to be another probably another year till they happen again. Anyway. Realistically, yeah. I think there there's some talks of B size Wales happening in like October time, but realistically, given the way the vaccinations are going, which I mean to be fair in Scotland's pretty good. I, I don't I don't see it happening anytime soon. Is that you back, Dave? I'm back. Excellent. Welcome back. Why thank you. Yeah. We were just talking about the well, we were talking about what Chris does to decompress and all that fun stuff. So, saying saying oh, cool. not not drinking and motorcycling is is kind of key. Yeah, single malt whiskey and or motor well or motorcycles. No, yeah. 
Probably not combined at the same time, one would imagine. Oh, no. No. Oh, I no. mean, well, I mean, on, on the topic yeah. of motorcycles, you're, you're quite big into motorcycles, Chris, aren't you? Have you uh, the two that you've got, are they, uh, are they the only ones you've had, or have you had lots of bikes over the years? Um, I've, I bought my first motorcycle when I was 15 years old. Um, and my mother didn't find out <laughs> until, I think, a week or two before she kicked me out of the house when I was 16. So was that a week or two into buying the motorcycle? She was like, you've got a motorcycle, get out, or was it? No, no, it, it was, uh, I was your typical troubled youth, and she was a stressed out single mom. Yeah. But the uh, best thing she ever did for me was give me the boot. But anyway, um, yeah, I've had oh, over 20 motorcycles in my lifetime. Wow. Nice. Easily. And have you have you got a favorite motorcycle, or is is the the ones you've got at the moment you're up up there, or have you kind of? Yeah, the the one that I uh, my customized one, or the one that I've been you know tweaking for the last ten years, is is probably my favorite. Is that a project one you've just thought, oh, always had around oh, for well ten years? Uh, have you just been tinkering away at that for the last? Uh, no, it's it's one of the fun things about Harley Davidson is they've got this Harley. brilliant marketing campaign, and I think it's they say something like "Make it yours," um, because Harley is actually a parts company. They make more money selling accessories and parts than they mm -hmm. do their motorcycles because you buy your bike, and then you want to make it yours, and then you mm -hmm. want to tweak it, you know. And it's a couple of hundred pounds here, a few hundred pounds there, you know, a couple of thousand here. And, and my one bike, I have replaced everything except the frame and about 70% of the engine. But so you've everything else I've replaced. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Yeah. It's very much, we were talking precast about um, what's one of your other hobbies, obviously, um, music, which, yeah. which I can relate to. Um, uh, I think that's the same with buying a drum kit. Uh, yes. <laughs> get it like, oh, I'll just add, there's the bass kit. Oh, I'll just add a wee splash symbol. Little China, you know. Oh, maybe switch that snare out and completely, and before you know it, you've kind of got something yeah. that's yours. You know, you, you can identify yeah. with. Like, and before you know it, your your you know your drum kit looks like Neil Pert. <laughs> that's yeah, for sure, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, kind of music then as well. Like, um, is that something that you would say you still kind of do to detune? Um, Compress. No, D. To detune properly. <laughs> um, actually. Not as much. When Not I much. last lived in the U.S., um, I actually did uh, firefighting as a side activity and ended up in a band with other firefighters. Awesome. Um, okay. That was my, yeah, so that was how I, we decompressed. We played uh, once a month at the local firefighter bar and just did cover tunes. It's the best, um, isn't it? I, I miss, so I, I do, I'm not very good at writing music uh, at all, but uh, when I was younger, um, it was like covers gigs was like the main thing. We, had, we were writing our own music and we'd slide a couple of tracks in while we were doing it. But it, it was mostly just uh, go to a bar where everyone's uh, absolutely out of their face and just play music to them for yep. like two, two or three hours. Like, uh, I tell you what, there's not many things that I don't do now that I miss like in quite the same way as that. Uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah, it, we, we had a lot of fun playing music. Um, going back to the Scottish thing, there are signature end of uh, night song that we always we always ended up on a, uh, ended on a high energy positive song was uh, mm -hmm. the proclaimers 500 miles of course yeah i played that a few times uh no one no, no one flips their shit <laughs> in quite the way as a, yeah. a, a the americans a love it or americans they, they as well imagine yeah it's uh yeah you know, 
So you're going deaf. But <laughs> only in Glasgow do you get here we fucking go at the end of it. Like, as the of course, encore. Of course. That's the way it goes. It's more famous for. That's interesting you're saying uh, firefighting. So was that volunteer? Uh, yeah. Kind of, kind uh, started our volunteer, ended up as a paid instructor uh, for the county and the state. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, it, it was probably the most legal fun you can have. Um, you know, driving one of those giant American uh, ladder trucks, uh, you know, oh, opposing imagine. traffic, yeah. with lights and sirens is just badass. Yeah, um, the thrill, like the, the adrenaline rush must be. Yeah, it's fun. Is Although, that hard to deal with, actually? Like, I'd imagine it must be at the beginning. You're kind of like, oh, <laughs> the power. <laughs> um, well, the, the training programs and the promotional tracks, like, you start out as a, as a firefighter and like kind of a junior firefighter, then you senior firefighter. And then yeah, you have to take more classes and go through a promotional test to become a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and drivers actually, and the reason why is as a driver, you're acting more independently. You don't have your officer there. You're making your own decisions that can have a direct uh, outcome on the incidents. Um, so it requires more experience and more capabilities. And um, it's, yeah, my, I remember um, my first my first few medical calls were terrifying because we we're all we we're all cross trained as medics, mm-hmm. and eighty oh, percent wow. of our calls were medical, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so had to deal with some very horrific stuff because of course mm-hmm. people call nine one one on their worst days. Also, they call nine one one literally when the cat is stuck up in a tree or there's a turkey vulture in their laundry room and they're trapped. Um, so you get some really funny stuff, but you also, of course, get the uh, the extremely not funny. But um, just the 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 feeling of, of accomplishment, like our, our shifts were 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. We'd sleep at the firehouse. Um, sometimes we didn't get any sleep. Um, of course, if it was a quiet night, we did. But it was great, you know, going into work the next day. And people are like, so what? You know, they're talking about watching American Idol Last night, like, so what did you do? Oh, well, you know, we had a hazardous materials call. We put out a house fire. We cut a car off of somebody. And uh, it's so they just stopped talking to you in the morning. (laughs) Just too interesting. (laughs) Well, I I think it it acts more of a mirror on they're watching TV and I'm doing really cool stuff. A hundred percent. And I'll be honest, I was kind of a dick about it sometimes, too. (laughs) So I'm... Yeah, uh, which Andy, I'm sure, comes as no surprise. Uh, that's a, <laughs> yeah, but they're um, interesting stories, though. Coincidentally, that my time in the fire service was one of the things that has helped me a lot as a CISO, because of course, when you're CISO, when you have a significant incident, um, whether it be a breach or an outage or you know just a significant incident, mm-hmm. um, you, you're generally expected to manage that. And uh, in the fire service, crisis management, I mean, we were trained on that. And as you progress through the ranks, we we did more training in the U.S. Everybody had to be trained in the National Incident Management System's Incident Command System. And I I had even taken week-long courses on this. So I had a whole lot of training on crisis management frameworks and how to manage um, crises. (laughs) Funnily enough. And then moving into CISO role, it, it was just so, so very helpful. In fact, the first bank where I was CISO, we changed our incident management framework to align with the U.S.'s national incident management framework. And then the, the rest of the bank for, for, their incident, for their crisis management, whether it be active shooter, because of course that's a thing in the States, or network outage, or weather incidents, it, it just became the standardized framework across the organization because it works if, if mm. you... And that's another area where 
I, I see a lot of challenges is we have our incident responder teams and but we're successful almost by accident as opposed to as opposed to on purpose and, and i'm not trying to to discount people or their skill sets but you know there you've got folks that are doing investigations but when i sh- i think uh, if you've been in the industry for a while and any you know they're always very chaotic nobody really knows who's in charge who they're reporting to um there's there's they're not very structured and mm. i used to be the guy who like i just was like don't don't oppress me man i'm, I'm a freelancer keep your structure away but if you can put structure around how you do stuff and make it repeatable you can become more efficient more effective and um it just gets that much better and you gain more credibility in your institution and more trust from your stakeholders because you're managing things quickly clearly concisely you're not wasting their time like uh, the last bank I was at, um, I got a call from our CIO, and we had the COO, the COO, the CFO, the CCO, the Chief Compliance Officer. We had half of our executive team on a, on a call for what was a kind of a minor incident with the ATMs that were showing somebody else's uh, account information, mm-hmm. um, and it was caught quickly. But we don't need like all of that management firepower because on a low level incident, mm-hmm. but because we didn't have a lot of structure, that was normal. Um, so we, again, we put in some structure and changed that and, uh, it, it really helped because our operations guys were happy because now they don't have all the suits on the call. The suits are happy because they're, they're not on the call with all these people talking a language they don't understand. Of course. Um, and so if you can put some structure on how you manage your incidents and not only how you manage your incidents, but if you take that same structure and you use it for, um, just like tra- train how you play, as, as the saying goes. Uh, if you use it for dealing with outages, but if you use it for deployments or new releases and just even minor things, you use the same structure, the same language and the same frameworks, then when you have a, a full-on crisis, you're, you're not worried about the, okay, who's, who's going to be doing what? You already know who's doing what. And then you can go about focusing on your job knowing that the other people know what their jobs are. Yeah, um, time is money, uh, as maybe the saying yeah. goes, but not always necessarily money, but like the, the, it, when it really comes to that proper instant, I'm sure time is of the essence, I guess, is maybe a better, uh, a better phrase. Interesting well, what you're saying. Well, it might not be, right? That's, that's, that's the fun thing, right? Is mm-hmm. how do you actually triage your incident? I mean, I don't want to go into the... I, I'll talk for hours about incident planning <laughs> and incident response. It's uh, obviously one of my hot buttons because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's just not done well in a lot of places and it's people are well intended and they're good at their jobs but they they lack a lot of formal training like threat intelligence um i I hate most cyber threat intelligence because it's not actionable it's just noise like when you you get a a high priority alert that says you know apt such and such uh, like north korea or whatever are interested in in targeting financial institutions this weekend Cool story, okay. bro. <laughs> Turns out a BuzzFeed uh, article headline. Uh, great. Uh, what institution, <laughs> what systems? Are they going after our payment systems? They want, are they going and, okay, they've said the, the case might be it's targeted Europe. Okay, but is, is, it, is it relevant? No. Is it actionable? Does it give me anything where I can respond and make any decisions on? No. If your threat intelligence doesn't enable you to make a decision, it's worthless. Um, yeah. Bottom line. Right. If it's not actionable, then it's garbage. 
and uh, there, there's just so much of that in 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 our industry. Like we just we we like looking sexy and important, but we're not at we over over dramatize mm-hmm. a lot of things. I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier on. Yeah. I mean, this is applicable to pen testing as well. And one of the things I wanted to raise when we were chatting about that was when it comes to reporting. One of the things that one of our previous guests said, so Aiden, who we had on a couple of episodes ago, was every time you raise a finding in a report, that creates work for someone. And uh-huh. as a pen tester, what I've learned over the years I've been doing it is it's all about optics and it's all about who sees the report and what actions are, are coming off of it. If you over-dramatise a finding or if you over-hype the risk around it, it actually makes it worthless. And if you mm. if you come to the, the conclusion that when you're writing a pen test report, I know we're going off the topic of instant response, but if you're writing a pen test report and you're collecting findings like they're Pokemon cards, they're not helping anyone. It's about kind of triaging things in an effective manner and going to root cause and playing that back into instant response if you're looking at an instant from a root cause perspective having actionable intelligence which is actually useful is it's it's worth its weight in gold rather than just giving you shitty fucking cvss 10 what does that mean well well we found that threat actor x is looking at, at system y but feeds into what you're just saying that it's not there's no specifics there so the optics aren't clear right Although to add to that on, on the whole threat intelligence, a lot of the problem actually stems with the CISO, right? So I'm, as much as I'm bashing, you know, vendor type services for your threat intelligence or whatnot, as organizations, we ourselves don't necessarily know what are the key assets you're trying to protect. Like if, if you look at threat intelligence in the intelligence community, you know, it's asset based threat and threat intelligence. And so, you know, you understand the assets, you understand the risks, you understand the impacts, and then you look at the threats. And in organizations, like, you know, the last couple of banks I was at, they were very broad. It's like, well, we, we look at our bank, okay, but, you know, your, your capital markets trading algorithms have a very different risk uh, than your uh, customer account data, right? You might think the customer account data is more important, but no, it's actually, you know, the you know, the trading algorithms, because that's where, where the money is made. And so to be able to get granular on the kinds of information and understand the different kinds of risks associated with your different kinds of information is critical to having any type of effective security program, period. And um, that's, I think, where we fail so much as CISOs. And you could argue, well, in a large company, that's data governance's job. Well, it is, but it's also our job. Um, so, you know, build relationships with the data governance team if there is one. And if there isn't, then do it yourself mm. um, and prioritize it. But uh, No, sorry. no, it's, 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 it's incredibly interesting. I mean, one of the things that we, well, we cover a very eclectic, eclectic, that's not the right word. I think it is, of, of topics. I'm going to get slaughtered by Morgan after this because she, she always picks apart my vocabulary. On, on, I try and use big words and I fucking fail at it. Anyway, we use a lot. We, we discuss a lot of topics. Uh, one of the things that we have not really discussed is uh, like, kind of, what's been the greatest achievement in your career? Because obviously, you've had a lot of different things that you've done over the, a lot of different roles, a lot of different interests. What's been the overall greatest achievement thus far? Can you narrow it down in kind of like, in, are we talking about something that I've done or an impact I've had? Anything. Or something I'm most proud of. Let's see impact it's, you've had because just when you said that there, I'm like that, that's an interesting one because we were talking about impact, like obviously of reports. You I, know, I like in, being vague. Yeah, specific impact. Let's go with impact. <laughs> um, 
I would say, so the first bank I worked at, I, after I, so when I was hired as CISO, um, coincidentally, my first day as CISO was April 1st, which I thought was hilarious. It was also the, the first day of a concurrent exam that the OCC, sorry, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Federal Reserve Banks, the two main regulators at our bank, were doing a uh, couple month long security assessment uh, of our organization. But um, I had also, starting at that time, the bank or the team had just finished uh, an employee satisfaction survey. And in the technology and operations group of the bank where that I was part of, uh, my team had the lowest score. And, uh, and it was perfectly fair because the bank had grown through acquisition the previous years and people were just kind of traded around like trading cards and just moved into mm. to different roles we had. You know, pen testing people doing supplier assessments. We had supplier assessment people doing like architecture work. There was just people, it, people were just higgly piggly. There was a lot of change. There was no communication. And there was, uh, there was also no clear and accountable executive because I was the first CISO uh, in the US for that bank. Sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. So, <laughs> understandably, people were kind of unhappy because they didn't know what they were doing or where they were going. And, and those are very important things for people to know at work. Very true. Right. What yeah. what are my what's my path like? What do I need to do to be successful? And where are we going? And uh, you know how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And if if they don't know that, then they're going to be cranky, and that's fair. But uh, twelve months later, the uh, the report that the the next survey that had come out that moved us to actually one of the top scores uh, in the bank, and um, I was really really proud of that. But it took mm -hmm. a lot of work to get us there. Um, Right, because I, if if you want to lead or manage a team, it takes work, yep. and it more importantly, it takes time. The job itself is not that easy. The things you need to do aren't complicated, but uh, you know, effectively leading a team, you need to be visible. You need to communicate. You need to be clear and consistent in how you communicate, and uh, you just need to be transparent when bad shit happens. Mm. And um, I spent. I, whenever possible, I would block time on Tuesdays and Thursdays to walk the halls, go down the cubes, talk to people, you know, ask them, are we winning? Are we losing? So if we were winning, it was something to celebrate and communicate. If we were losing, then it's something that probably needed some type of escalation. And it, it helped people, you know, tell me what was going on, what they needed. And it also helped me understand what was going on with my team. And uh, I also took everybody, I tried to take everybody twice a year across the street to Starbucks for half an hour to have a coffee and just talk about their career or whatever they wanted to talk. Some people wanted to talk about scuba diving, some motorcycles, other people were more career focused, didn't care. It's like their time, you know, do with it how you will. Yeah, and nice. yeah. that really paid off in terms of just taking people around. We ended up, as a result of those conversations, moving people to the teams they actually wanted to be in. We did a lot of change, identified who the toxic people were. So, you know, gave them some ultimatums, exited a couple of them. Because, you know, whenever I t take on board a new team, I tell people I have no plans, in unless, of course, I've been, the conditions of hiring where we are going to make some staffing changes. Mm -hmm. But I always say I have got no plans for staffing uh, changes except for one. If you're an asshole, fix your shit or your days are numbered. Yep. Um, so important. That's no so room important. for toxic people. Like, yeah. if we can't work with you, we're not going to. Um, and, you know, nuking toxic people does also wonders for morale. 
So one of my questions to you is going to be, and you've already answered it, uh, was like, I'd imagine being a CISO coming into a business uh, must be quite a daunting experience, both for you uh, and obviously the people working there. I've I've had management changes like these before. You know, (laughs) it does always bring change and change always brings uncertainty. And obviously that that can really affect mindsets. And obviously it's really important to hit the ground running with that. And my question was going to be like, how is it you get people uh, kind of on side w- with you on board but you've literally just described that and haven't been through the many jobs I have uh, if someone came in with your attitude like you've just described there you know and put that in place like be very easy to get on board with that so you can see why you've been very successful because um, that's always but, really important it's very people f- very very people focused yeah, it's not though just the attitude and being friendly and approachable but it's actually you know taking the information you're given and acting on it yep and if you don't act on it, going back to the person and explaining why you didn't, um, you know, you got to have, you know, accountability is a two, two-way thing. And, um, yeah. you know, you need to be accountable to your people just like they need to be accountable to you. Because bottom line is as a CISO, right, my job, my, my day-to-day activities, I go to meetings. That's what I do for a living. Uh, you know, the last job with the last bank I had, had, Lots of responsibilities. I uh, had a develop, large development team responsible for fraud operations, all the security stuff. I was pretty excited about it. My mother asked me, so what, what's your new job doing? You know, what do you actually do? I say, I go to meetings. She's like, no, really, what do you do? I said, no, really, I attend meetings. And occasionally we go offsite and have meetings too. <laughs> um, but as a CISO, that's generally what you do. You're not doing the work. It's actually your team that are doing all of the stuff. And they're the ones that are going to make you look good or make you look like an asshole. Yeah. Right. And so if you invest in your people and you give folks what they want in terms of where they want to go in their career with what they need today, like if you tell somebody you're here and you need to get there, here's your path to success. But conversely, you don't give them the resources they need to be successful while you're just a dickhead. Yeah. Right. So you need to make sure that people have a clear, understand what it is they need to do to be successful, have the resources, which is basically tools and time to to be uh, successful and then also as as their i hate the word but as their leader you you need to be available to be an effective rapid point of escalation for when things things go wrong yep um and they've got to have the trust to contact you yeah you know, like and, and know that it's going to get handled and you know and handled well so no that, honestly that sounds like a, a lot strong kind of skills there for sure yeah well it, the things to do they the the tactical activities themselves are easy. What makes it really hard is it is such a time sink, mm-hmm. right? And if you are, as your typical CISO, in meetings, like you're booked, you're almost double booked from 7 in the morning till 8, 8 p.m. at night, Monday to Friday, how do you find time? And at my last job, it was hard. I was not anywhere near as successful as I wanted to be in terms of being there for my folks. Mm-hmm. What also made it challenging is my people were in, you know, and, and like six different European countries. And, you know, I had some folks in the Philippines, had folks in India. Uh, and then we're, you know, opening a, a, another another center in uh, Portugal. So it would have been yet another location. Like it, it took me three months as to get platinum status on the local airline um, at my last job. Like, it was, it's mental. But, um, yeah, that sounds like what, what a challenge, actually. Just, I mean, yeah. it's, I, I've dealt with people in other countries and stuff, and it's always a, a different experience. I've loved every time I have, actually. Uh, it's, been, it's been great, but 
like obviously with so much responsibility and having to be the glue that's uh, you know keeping all that together across thousands of miles boundaries languages like uh it's it's tough (sighs) Um, one of the big unifiers believe it or not is uh is the alcohol is alcohol and happy hour the the lovely thing about working on the continent is you can do events at work and bring out bring out the drinks cart (laughs) um and you know, if you're just a couple folks having a having a beer, um, it's great there. One of one of the offices uh, that I had on my, my first time going there, they had heard that I was a big whiskey uh, fan. They gave me a bottle of their local spirit, and um, as kind of a welcome gift. So the next time I went to that office, I was still living in Edinburgh, and I was flying there. Uh, I, was, I was commuting weekly for the first few months. Um, I picked up a, a few bottles of Edinburgh gin at the uh, at duty free, and then. Uh, so for my visit, you know, I brought them some Scottish gin and we did gin and tonics in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And just little things like that, of yeah. like treating people like people because they are. Um, it makes know, a massive go, difference. Go uh, a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. But right. again, it takes time and that's the hardest point and you have to prioritize. Like I, and uh, I did not, in full, full honesty, I did not at my last gig uh, prioritize near as much as I wanted to or or should have mm-hmm. um, you know I just you know I, I, I chose the wrong activities and it, it did impact the team you know what? I really I really appreciate your candor with that uh, and the kind of honesty of it um, kind of reflecting back on it and thinking yeah, and, and, and just saying that there's maybe something I could have done better there but because uh, just before that obviously you were describing that's the way that you also handle you know, dealing with your team. Like, you know, if something doesn't go the way, you know, be able to reflect back on that and try and improve it next time. Because let's be honest, that's all you can ever really do. So um, it's really interesting just seeing, I guess, both sides of the coin for you there. You've given us some of the really positive stuff and and, uh, then the stuff you can improve on. Like, it's really important to obviously keep kind of improving yourself. So um, is that something that you think will spur you on for the next kind of role that you go into? Um, either in the way that you negotiate a new role or um, in the way that you you can act? Like, is that something you feel you're going to be taking on on board with you into the next role? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and with that, one of the things I'm actually targeting uh, for, for my next role is I, I want to do something smaller. Um, it was great for my ego. In all honesty, being CISO of a global bank and having many hundreds of people working for me in a ridiculous mm-hmm. budget and all of, of those things you know i i you know i thought that uh my poop didn't smell it was and uh <laughs> that was part of why i started making bad decisions i i prioritized the prestige of going to all the executive team meetings with the ceo and everybody over spending time with my team and uh you know that that was my my big script but uh, this next time around what i really want to do is uh i want to do something smaller with a smaller group of people and uh just you know sounds fantastic I, yeah it's just, yeah, just I, i'd imagine it's very different uh, and it sounds like the stuff that you really sound like you enjoy you'll probably get to do more of that because i'd imagine the more you scale yeah the, the less face-to-face you're going to have um well not just face-to-face right you, you can be in the elevator you go of to course, the cafeteria yeah. or standing in line at at the starbucks and somebody walks up to me and says, oh, hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm like, hey, great, how the heck are you? How are things? And I'm th- I have no idea who this person is. 
right? And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that they're one of mine. Like, so, you know, how, how are we doing on those epics? Because I heard you guys were having some challenges, yeah. which was almost always a safe thing to say um, because we always were. You know, it's the nature of development. And um, it's the whale card. You know, and uh, so that they would give me the answers and they, they would feel kind of validated, like I'm asking, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm asking them some, you know, relevant questions, but I still have no idea who they are. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> it's, I hate that. And yeah, it's it's inevitable, right? You don't scale because like my last organization was, uh, if we included externals, uh, you know, just over 500 people, which is exactly. a lot of people. Um, but I also had a lot of responsibility on top of the CISO stuff. I had a big development team, had 25 squads, and I had fraud operations, including the call center. So, you know, there, there was just a lot. And... Uh, I'll be honest, it was a bit much. Imagine. I can imagine. Like, I don't think I, I, I can say right now. Uh, I don't see that in my kind of future in my career. Um, I think yeah. a, a lot of people are going to be built for it. Um, you know, I think maybe... <laughs> Turns out I'm not. Well, that, this is the thing. Like, I mean, I'd imagine there's a lot of people that must get to the, in those positions and find, especially maybe coming from technical backgrounds as well, where you've maybe not thought so much. But did you think about management kind of at, at the beginning or is that something you could just kind of... It just happened as time went on. Um, would you have thought when you were the, when you were at your most technical? You're asking um, like seven questions in one here, Dave. What you're saying? No, no. I don't, well, I'm, I'm getting <laughs> to my point. Right. When when you were at your most technical, would you have ever thought you would have been going for CISO kind of management? Was that in the, the long term, 10, 20 year plan? Um, kind of, but only more tongue in cheek. Because mm -hmm. um, when I was at my most technical. I remember, as most techies do, complaining about the assholes making all the bad decisions. And I used to joke with my friends that, you know what, I'm so tired of this that what I need to do is I need to become the asshole that makes the bad decisions. Um, so that's as far as the thought was at my most technical. Mm -hmm. um, but I got forced into kind of leadership and management roles because of our group of people uh, where I was working at the time, where I was definitely... Uh, you know, kind of way steep in, in, in the tech. I was the one who had the best personal hygiene and I owned a suit. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine that kind of... It's, it's sad, yeah. it's stereotypical, it's kind of <laughs> offensive, but it's unfortunately the reality at the time. It was imagine. absolutely the case. We were a group of people. Uh, the building we worked in had a dress code. Uh, if you weren't in uniform, you had to wear a suit and tie. And as, as I kind of joked about before, that where our, our cubicles were, I put a thermostat in and they were literally like high 90s uh, in Fahrenheit. So like mid to high 30s uh, was the temperature where we were working. Mm -hmm. So we'd come come into work in our suits and then just kind of strip down and put on shorts <laughs> and t-shirts. Um, and then we just started coming to work in shorts and t-shirts because we were really good at what we did and we thought we could get away with it. Yeah. And we did. But um you know, the arrogance of technology. But uh, I kept a suit in my queue because occasionally one of us would need to go brief somebody on uh, the work we were doing. And those somebodies uh, were typically very important folks. And uh, because I was the guy who had the suit, you were the scapegoat. Um, it just happened to be me. And that's how I actually got into management entirely by accident. Nice.
Just by having the suit. Just by having the suit. It's amazing the difference it projects. Like, uh, I'm not a suit guy at all. If I could go through my entire life without wearing a suit, which I won't. You've uh, gotten into the world of pen testing, dude. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have to. Well, when when COVID allows us to return back to going on site, you will be in a suit at some point. Like, if you work for a bank, if you go with a large financial organisation, I mean, just large organisations in general, they expect you to wear a suit, so... So, yeah, sorry, I won't be on sorry site to be too much, well, apparently. Well, not in this, not in this role, but I, I guarantee no, you. I, my, in my career, yeah, of course. But, well, maybe Although, to be, be honest, nice when you've got suits, <laughs> sorry, I don't even own one. <laughs> yeah, but when you've got a few, it actually makes life so much easier. It's of just yeah, easier yeah. getting because it's your uniform, right? If you look at military guys, they wear a uniform. If you're your banker, your suit is your uniform. Yeah. And if you look at it from that perspective. You know, it's it's not not that daunting. It's just what you what you wear to do the job you've signed up to do. No, I don't um, think I'd ever feel kind of daunting about. It. I think I guess what I mean more is kind of the natural kind of. Uh, yeah, I'm not your natural born suit, I suppose. But um, the thing is, though, I think when you turn up, at, like I mean, you're never going to turn up in a shorts and t-shirt. I'm sure for you know any kind of business meeting, unless you're an absolute idiot. Does that right? make me an idiot? Um, next, I've been in business meetings in shorts and t-shirt before. I've seen pictures of you. I've in also suits. been in business uh, meetings in shorts and t-shirt, but that's because it was the culture of the, <laughs> the organization that I was on site with. So, well, there's an interesting question there. Then, so does it? Do you read the room when you turn up? Well, for me, I would always turn up for an interview in a suit. Like uh, it's just because at the end of the day, you're never going to offend someone in a suit. Like, but you might offend someone not turning up and looking professional. I think. So. I think if somebody is offended with you, the, the way in which you dress, unless you're wearing like "fuck off, you bunch of cunts," like a t-shirt. You, it's, that really wouldn't surprise me I've, for you I, I, I only own one t-shirt that says cunt and it doesn't actually say cunt and it says computer user non-technical it's very subtle very, but yeah if you're in a if you're in an environment we've gone like an hour and 45 minutes before, for you not to say that that's not bad I, not, he started in the I first, said it in the first seconds, 20 seconds honest, like, but. <laughs> right but you haven't since then so you know, it's I'd, true yeah yeah are you feeling okay yeah. like, I'd, I'd give you a high five but I'd have to touch you for that <sighs> nah, regardless of COVID I don't want to do that so. <laughs> no I've been one of the things I've been working on is my vocabulary and not using uh, computer using on technical too often because uh, it helps Oh, fair enough. You've cut down probably at least by half. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I think, like you say, owning a owning a suit, I think, uh, is something that's going to have to be on the cards. And even to be absolutely fair, I suppose if you're going to go into something that is quite formal, wearing the suit, I'd imagine probably puts you in that mindset, that frame of mind. Like you know, uh, Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Ra- wrapping yeah. up. So we've got two two questions here that, that I kind of want to cover because we're. Dave's original plan was we'll aim for an hour and a half and we're, we're near an hour and 50 but we'll cut out some bits and pieces in between so the, the last two questions we've got here we've kind of answered the second last one but what are your kind of plans for the future like what where do you see yourself um, like what, what is your what are, what are your plans there's no time scale on it just general future well there's two professionally there's two things I'd like to do is one is go and work with the smaller companies like startup scale up Again, and the other is uh, do non-exec work, um, and you know, just do some uh, board work. You're seeing a lot of demand, or the regulators are starting to pressure large organizations to have not just technical people on their board, but folks that understand, uh, quote unquote, security. Mm-hmm. And um, I think my background helps with that, and I think it's the next logical step for me for my career. But I also want to do something with a smaller company that's just 
some really bad, cool, like fintech work um, and disrupt the market with something really cool. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. And then the, the final question we've got here, and we ask all our guests this, is there anything you'd like to plug? I don't know that I have a work appropriate response. I mean, I mean, this isn't a work appropriate uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> You're not the first guest, Chris, that we've had that we've asked that question to that's uh, had to take a moment of silence. <laughs> Did we not ask John Carroll? Yeah, that? he, he like, said that something was, like "not yeah. your bum" or something. I was like, "For fuck's sake!" Yeah, <laughs> sounds about right. Um, yeah, well, I, I try to be somewhat grown up on occasion. <laughs> Uh, short answer, no, other than, um, well, if you get a chance, go to DEF CON, but if you don't get a chance, uh, definitely support your local, uh, conferences. If there isn't a conference near you or there is a conference near you, that's not giving you what you want, start one. Mm. Nice. It's that easy. Go out and meet the people, meet people with similar interests and you never know where you end up. It's worked for me. I'm sure it's worked for many other people. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Had, had it not sure. been for conferences, uh, that wouldn't be dead, but we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation because conferences are the reason that no. I met Chris. Exactly. It's not the reason I met you, Dave, but this is the reason true. I met Chris. But we did start the podcast off the back we of start, uh, We did start Steel the Con. podcast so. off the back of a hilarious drive down to SteelCon where we had all these plans and then we went, fuck it, we're going to start a podcast. And then now, what, almost two years on, we've, we've got a podcast and it seems to be pretty popular so far. On yeah, thanks to uh, guests like yourself, Chris. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. Because, like I say, we've had loads of great guests on. Most of them kind of travel in similar circles, but it's been very interesting to get a kind of CISO kind of approach. Because at the end of the day, you're you're the type of people that throughout my career, no doubt, I'm going to be speaking to uh, either if I kind of go, you know, join a company internal, you know, uh, or delivering reports to. So it's really interesting to get a valuable perspective from you um and just yeah thank you thanks for your time today yeah thank you it's been my pleasure and i've had a lot of fun it's been great fun oh i pressed the wrong button no i haven't thank fuck i thought i'd like ended the call there that would have been ended really badly (laughs) (laughs) no i just want to take the time to say thanks very much as dave said at the start you're one of the guests that i wanted to come on for a while um that sounded really badly come on the podcast for a while (laughs) (laughs) well Thank I'm probably going to cut that. Like. One of the guests I'd like to have on the on the podcast for a while. That, that's probably a better way of <laughs> If you cut it out, it's going to look really... Anyway. <laughs> Just do a proper goodbye and we'll cut it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to WeGCast. This has been episode 19 and we've had a, a fantastic time. And if you've made it this far, thank you listeners. Cheers, folks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.